Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So good morning, everyone. If you would, please place your hands, palms together, universal gesture of respect, and repeat after me. May I be a protector. May I be a protector. To those without protection. To those without protection. A leader to those who journey. A leader to those who journey. And a boat. And a boat. A bridge. A bridge. A passage. A passage. For those desiring the further shore. For those desiring the further shore. May the pain of every living creature. May the pain of every living creature. Be completely cleared away. Be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature. May the pain of every living creature. Be completely cleared away. Be completely cleared away. So the title of my Dharma talk today is In and Out Dharma. And I apologize to those of you who may be challenged by the vegetarian diet. Near the end of the retreat, our thoughts usually turn outward to the things we've been missing. And in the part of California I come from, there is In-N-Out Burger, (laughs) which I've actually never been to, so I'm thinking I should go (laughs) at some point. So this is In-N-Out Dharma. We'll start out with In. So it's, it's been said that when we sit in meditation, when we uh, actually do meditation probably in any of the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, or forward, back, side-to-side movement, and lying down, that we're taking a journey into inner space. Our focus becomes inward. We're not paying so much attention to what's around us. We're going inward. Our focus is inward to the body, to the breath, and then thoughts and feelings begin to arise, memories, hopes, fears. You all are familiar with all of this because that's what's been going on during our People of Color um, retreat. It's what happens to the human being when, when we meditate. And it's been said that we can think of ourselves, we can arouse this sense of adventure, of courage, of exploration of that inner space, and we can think ourselves of ourselves as cosmonauts of inner space. So instead of launching ourselves into outer space, we're launching ourselves into inner space. And I personally always liked, I was trained to be very particular. Uh, the Zen school is extremely particular um, about the place of seated meditation. And so something that I invite you to try when you go home and you go to your home sangha or you practice in your home is to just try to place a little bit more attention, mindfulness, on the actual place where you sit, whether it be a chair, whether it be the meditation mats or cushion. Uh, You can think of this place as your place of practice uh, for the moment that you're doing the seated meditation, and so you want to respect it. You want to regard it as your uh, your little throne of awakening, your little area where um, where uh, you can 
you can spiritually awaken. You can find joy, happiness, wisdom, and peace. Um, and also see just a lot of your own stuff rising and falling. So we want to, we want to honor it. And so <clears throat> you'll notice that when I get up from sitting, I usually turn around, plump my round cushion, put it in place, carefully make sure there's no dirt or dust or hair on it, and kind of spiff it up a little bit. And then also when I sit down, I make sure that everything's in place, and I personally think of it as kind of the cockpit of my little spaceship, my inner spaceship pad. You know, it's like I've got the controls, I've got the gear. And then, you know, if, if you're not ringing the bell, you're just sitting there and you're waiting for the bell to ring with, like, you know, the countdown, right? <laughs> 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, launch! <laughs> And then whatever happens, happens in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. Um, it's often can be different every time, either in a subtle way or in a pretty gross, large way, and often not what we think. So what do we discover when we slow down and reduce outer uh, stimuli? The meditation hall is a place where Things tend to be kept rather orderly, neat, predictable, not too hot, not too cold, ideally, um, not too bright, not too dark, and um, within reason. And also, uh, of course, there always are sounds in the environment. It's considered very favorable to establish a, a practice that we have a space that is you know, it's not dead silence, but just kind of reasonably quiet, reasonably quiet. I myself did my original training at the Zen Buddhist Temple of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is located on Packard Road, one of the main thoroughfares through Ann Arbor. And that was the thoroughfare whenever there was a f big fire in Ann Arbor, and the fire trucks and the sirens would go up and down. Uh, so I was trained in an urban environment that was actually quite noisy, and that was okay. We learned to include that in our meditation, and um, you know we're grateful that someone was hopefully was getting the help that they needed. And same thing in downtown Oakland, where I practice now at the East Bay Meditation Center. We're in downtown Oakland, so there are all kinds of city noises, and. We include that in our meditation practice because we're not trying to shut anything out. Obviously, if it's something that's really loud, like someone pounding nails on your roof or something, that can become difficult. So again, we reasonably uh, reduce the outer stimuli in order to launch ourselves into this inner space. And what do we find when we do this? Among other things, and I'm sure this is no surprise to you, we find a lot of thinking. As noted in Vipassana, thinking, thinking, thinking. Maybe more thinking after that, thinking. There's a word that I learned from my friends uh, who go to Spirit Rock and have practiced there since I come from, um, originally from another school, and that is papancha. I've also seen it as prapancha, otherwise known as yogi mind. 
And papancha, as I've heard it, one definition of is, it is uh, uncontrollable proliferation of thought. Uncontrollable proliferation of thought. Just when we have hundreds, thousands of thoughts, all just uncontrollably begetting other thoughts and then other thoughts and then feelings come up. I'm sure we all understand that from a primary point of view. So it can be interesting to uh, look at, and these, these thoughts can be pleasant thoughts. They can be unpleasant thoughts, or they can be like meh, neutral thoughts. Usually not too much neutral thinking, because we're, we we're not too aware of neutral thoughts. A lot of it's either pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, you know, very common yogi mind thoughts are like, you're not supposed to be looking around, but you think, wow, that person on the other side of the meditation hall is really attractive. <laughs> I wonder if they're single. <laughs> I'm going to get their email address after the retreat. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, other common thoughts, uh, you know, basically it's like food, sex, sleep, um, worries. Uh, there, there's some like top ten hits of, of thoughts that are very common <laughs> in the meditation hall. Um, so, what is it that the Buddha taught about thoughts? What did he uh, teach on thoughts? Quite a bit, actually. In the translation of the Dhammapada, which is one of the earliest written-down texts, uh, presumably, of the sayings of the historical Buddha Shakyamuni, there are various translations, some more scholarly. This one is more contemporary, more poetic, and it was originally assigned to us when I started Zen training in 1980. 283 in Michigan by the teacher, and I've tended to use it ever since. I actually have two different, two other more scholarly translations, and I'll sometimes compare them. Uh, but this one is by Thomas Byram, is a translator. It's a, it has a preface by Ram Das. Uh, it's out of print, but I think you can get it online, and there are used copies available. So it's called the Dhammapada, the Sayings of the Buddha. And this one is really nice because it's it's also got um, it's, it's also got these really beautiful photographs by a photographer of just everyday people, trees, uh, emphasizing that these teachings are not. We don't have to live in temples. We don't have to go to another country. We can if we want to. However, they're for each of us in our everyday lives. So among other things, what did the Buddha say on thoughts? And I quoted to you the other night the famous one, uh, which is, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. The Buddha also said, how can a troubled mind understand the way? How can a troubled mind understand the way? Know that the body is a fragile jar and make a castle of your mind. I think this could also be fortress. Know that the body is a fragile jar, is a container easily broken, easily damaged. And make a castle of your mind. In every trial, let understanding fight for you 
to defend what you have won. For soon the body is discarded. Then what does it feel? A useless log of wood, it lies on the ground. Then what does it know? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. That's a very strong teaching on the power of thoughts to either harm us and injure us or help us achieve um, our spiritual goals as as well as our other goals in life for positive ends. So what do we need to do in order to start to, as uh, the Tibetan teacher uh, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche says, to turn our mind into our ally. So that our mind is not our enemy, our mind is not our obstructor, our frustrator, um, our annoying neighbor. We want to turn our mind into our friend and our ally. And that means... um, using our meditation practice in our everyday life in order to understand the nature of thoughts. We need to see clear demonstrations, probably many times, of how easily our buttons can be pushed. And this is particularly um, done, I would say, in the school I come from which is a Zen Buddhism. And probably, as some of you kind of know, either intimately or more distantly, there is a function of some Zen, not all, which is what is called the koan practice. Bhante Suhita Dharma has referred to it, and it would be known in the most kind of popularized form as something like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? I was told by Robert Aitken, Roshi, a Zen master, that that is actually not a correct translation of the original, but that's how it's come into popular lore, and there are a lot of feeble Zen jokes and things like that. However, it is an actual and ancient practice, and believe me, it is no joke. Uh, it's, it's very rigorous, and it is... Um, it it needs a lot of it needs a lot of commitment and it has the potential to yield some great results at least in my point of view. It can tell us a lot about our thinking, the koan or meditation question, which is like a riddle. It cannot be solved by um, ordinary discursive thinking. Of course, everyone does try to solve it by ordinary thinking because you think, well, what the heck? If I can't solve it by thinking, what do I do? Psychically channel it? I mean. You just, that's the whole idea of it, is you just keep being pushed down these blind alleyways and coming up against yourself again and again. So it's extremely irritating and uh, sometimes boring, sometimes frightening, never pleasant, I don't think, maybe a tiny fraction of a second. It's, it's challenging. It's a practice that's designed so that we can't play it safe, we can't use our usual methods to hide out and look cool, 
or look knowledgeable because it's not about knowledge in the usual sense of the word. So I found this out uh, in particular. I had a very strong experience in New Mexico in December 1985 when I uh, sat the seven-day Rohatsu Seshin. Uh, so Seshin is a silent seven-day retreat in the Zen tradition, Japanese Zen, and Rohatsu is in December and is considered to be the kind of like kick-ass Seshin of the year because it commemorates Shakyamuni Buddha's great enlightenment. And we're supposed to just give it our all. Like if you give it 100%, give it 105%. So it's, it's often it's a really wonderful retreat. Uh, it's a good retreat to attend. And I did this at uh, Amez Bodhi Banda, which is in the Amez Mountains uh, in New Mexico. They have natural hot springs. So in the Japanese style, this is uh, the Rinzai style or so-called Samurai style. So it is not comfortable and it's not meant to be. You get up at 2.30 in the morning and uh, the meditation hall totally unheated. So it was cold. However, every day we would get a chance to go kind of march in military style to the hot springs and take this nice soak. And that was so good. It was really, really nice. Also a feature of, of these retreats were that you had an, a one-on-one -on -one interview with the teacher, who in this case is um, Kyozan Joshu Sasaki Roshi. He's still teaching. He's located in the L.A. area. He does, the center in New Mexico is still there. And he's either 104 or 105. Still teaching. Unbelievable. So he was old when I was there in 1985. And he was, like, really old. Now he's inconceivably ancient, and he's still kicking it up. So you have to go face-to-face -face with the old man. That's what it's called. And... Uh, you have to, you're given a koan, you have to state your koan, and then you do have to produce an answer. Um, you can't just sort of hide out and say, well, I don't really know. Can you maybe check in with me next time? That's just not allowed. You, you go in, there's a line, you, you do not futz around, you make your prostrations, you state your koan, your question, your unsolvable question, and then you have to offer your puny, inadequate answer. So it's, so it's really kind of devastating and lots of stuff kind of. And people, of course, will get angry. Um, they'll be defiant. I mean, you just go through all these changes, uh, which is what it's designed to do. And he's just sitting there. In the meantime, you know, watching these hundreds of students go past, I'm sure he's just seen it all. And these are very brief, you know. You state the question, you give your answer. He usually goes, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> if you even get that much and says, more zazen, which means more sitting meditation, and rings his little handbell, and you just fly out of there like a bat out of hell, thinking, it's so nice to be so relaxed in my meditation hall where I'm quietly left alone. But then you have to go back again and again. Um, and, and so the days pass. So anyway, I went in, and we were pretty well cooked by that time. 
there was just very, very silent. Their meditation halls are so silent. You literally can hear a pin drop. There was no coughing. There was no sneezing. There is no moving. Deep concentration. And so I don't know what the heck the koan was. It was totally unanswerable. And um, so I squeaked out my little answer, whatever it was. Um, and uh, the teacher said, in this completely flat tone of voice, he said, he doesn't speak that much English, but he does a little. He said, you have ego. And instantly, because I was like so stripped of all my normal thinking, I didn't, that argumentative intellectual mind, like, what do you mean I have ego? Isn't that even in like an English term? It doesn't even exist in Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not like that. I said, you have ego. It was like he just punched this big button on my psyche that said, shame. And I was just overcome with like, the papancha of shame and thoughts proliferated in my mind. Oh, my God. He's seen me as I am in my, my ignorance and my confusion. I am the worst Zen student in the world. He has never seen anything as pathetic as me. Shame, 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 and just all these thoughts and so forth. And, and they crescendoed in a second to this giant flaming ball of shame. And at that moment, he said in exactly the same tone of voice, like completely equal, he said, you have no ego. (laughs) (laughs) And at that, I'm ashamed to admit it, but this is the truth. Then he had just punched the hubris button, (laughs) the, the delusional, you know, like everybody during the meditation retreat often at some point thinks, wow, I'm really enlightened. Other people may not understand, but I do. And so he punched the hubris button of spiritual delusion, and I thought, oh, wait a minute. I am a pretty good Zen student. Maybe I have sort of gotten enlightened. Roshi sees. He sees me. Oh, I'm a liberated being. This is so wonderful. I can't even look at Suhita because something bad might happen to me. This is a true story. It's very humiliating, and I'm sharing it with you to talk, tell you about thought. And uh, so then there was like this crescendo of, of hubris and, and delusion, followed by extreme shame because I thought, then I had doubts. I thought, well, maybe not, maybe not. And then I just, you know, it hit me. He had yanked my chain within a few seconds. I had gone from the deepest pit of hell to the highest (laughs) point of, you know, enlightened heaven. And then suddenly I just came right down to earth. I landed and I thought, oh, damn. (laughs) And, of course, Roshi said, more zazen. And I flew out of there. I I was so happy to leave that interview room. And I was so happy that there wasn't like a hidden camera in there, as far as I knew, and that it was all private, and, and I didn't have to ever tell anybody because, you know, it just it was it was really really embarrassing. And it taught me a lot because it was so dramatic. So over time, we learn this: that all thoughts are not facts. If there's one thing that you could take away into your everyday life, this might be a good one to take. All thoughts are not facts. In fact, most of them are not facts. 
one thought can send us to heaven. I love you. I love you. Another one, immediately to hell. I don't love you anymore. What is the nature of these thoughts? So through meditation practice, our mind slowly becomes more stable, more open, more flowing, more inclusive, because we understand that every time we have a thought, we don't necessarily need to follow it. We don't necessarily need to build on it. We don't necessarily need to do anything about it at all except let it have its little thought existence life, pops into being at some point, we become aware of it at some point, it has a certain duration, afflictive thoughts, of course, that causes a lot of suffering can be quite repetitive, quite long-lasting. Other thoughts go by in a nanosecond. However, they all have a beginning, a middle, and then they do have an end where they change or, or dissolve or disappear. We see this drama happening, this pattern happening over and over uh, in sitting meditation practice in particular. Because in movement meditation practice, often we're going with the movement, and that can be very good for, for our bodies or if we have a lot of agitation. Sitting meditation is considered important for those of us who are inclined that way. Not everyone is because it, um, it provides such a minimalistic container in which there is nothing else to do except to face our minds. So thoughts are very powerful. And as spiritual scientists, um, another term that, uh, that Bhante Suhita Dharma used in his Dharma talk yesterday, we can also try to understand the nature of thought by doing what I call little thought experiments. So this is a story of a thought experiment I did. And some years ago, an old friend of mine um, put together a, he was with a, a movement organization called Spirit in Business, which was about spirituality in the business world. And they had had a couple of very successful conferences, I believe one in Europe and one on the East Coast, and so then they organized one in San Francisco. So anyway, I connected with my old college friend around this and said um, it was going to be at a fancy hotel in downtown San Francisco, and I said, uh, I'll volunteer to set up in person a meditation room. So then people can come and meditate or pray or contemplate whenever they like during the conference. And uh, I'll also invite a friend of mine, a Zen priest from San Francisco Zen Center, to give instruction. And it'll be really cool. And he said, okay. So I was given, uh, they had a, a number of rooms rented for this conference in the hotel and other things were going on as usual. So the room they gave me was supposed to be in a quiet corner. It was away from the big rooms where various lectures and seminars were going on. And I was off in a little corner, uh, down, kind of down a hall, uh, <clears throat> just tucked away. It had a rather nice windows at the corner where I could look down. It was downtown San Francisco. It was really nice. And so 
I just, I had some meditation mats and cushions I'd lugged in from San Francisco Zen Center. And of course there were chairs and I had a little candle. And then I, I just figured that if no one came by for most of the time, I would use it for me. It would be my little private solo sitting retreat. And that then when people came, it would be interesting to see who, who, who came. And people did come usually before meals and in the morning we had yoga and, and I met some very nice people. However, most of the time I was alone. So I was sitting, sitting, sitting in meditation and I could hear some, some noises in the hotel around me, but it was pretty quiet. And then on about the third day after I'd done quite a bit of sitting by myself, I'm sitting and these huge noises start just like down the hall, like the distance between me and the kitchen. Not far down at all, though I can't see it. It sounds as though somebody is both destroying and moving huge pieces of furniture. <laughs> I can't believe it. I thought, surely they know that a conference is going on. We have this quiet room here. And whatever they're doing there, it'll just die down in a minute or so. So I talked to myself in this way and continued to sit. It got even louder. And it just got worse and worse and louder and worse until I just had to give up any pretense of equanimity and <laughs> admit I was just totally enraged. I was so irritated. And I had all of these thoughts proliferating through my mind like, like, well, this is, this is outrageous. I mean, here it's so noisy. No one can meditate here. I should tell my friend who organized this conference, and he should ask for some of their money back, and so on and so forth. And, you know, who are these fools? And many uncharitable thoughts came through my mind. So, um, so there I was in the hell realm of irritation and anger and wanting some revenge and that kind of thing. And then it just occurred to me, um, I was going to do a thought experiment. I was going to see what would happen if I thought something different. Now, I'm not crazy, or I don't think I am, so I didn't think that this was, was I was going to manipulate reality. I just thought, I'm just going to try this little experiment, and I invite you to do the same. So my mother, whom I love very much, died in December 1997 after five years of battle with large-cell lymphoma. And at the time that she died, she weighed, I don't know, about 93 pounds. She really had, she'd lost her hair, she'd lost, she was just down to skin and bones. And um, she'd gone from being quite a vigorous person. She was only 65. She had lots of plans for retirement. She'd been one of the first women pharmacists and was just a beloved person in our family, in our community. Great mom, wonderful person. And she herself felt that getting cancer was really, really unfair. So she was pretty mad when she died. And we missed her very much. So I just, I just thought, okay, I'm going to do a little thought experiment. And I'm going to just imagine. I'm hearing all this noise down the hall, like giant pieces of heavy furniture are being moved and pushed and rolled over and... God knows what. And I thought, 
What if my mother had come back to life just miraculously and she was so strong, she was in such great shape that she was in there moving these pieces of furniture. And instantly, even though I knew this was a thought experiment, instantly, just the thought of my mom with her hair grown out, so strong, in great shape, moving furniture, it filled my heart with love and happiness and joy. I was just filled with bliss. I thought, you know, you go back to that little childlike place. Oh, mommy is back. And um, and then I, I really understood something. I really understood something about the nature of thought. Right? So one, I don't even know who was in there or really what they were doing. I'm sure there was a good reason for it. So one thought... What the heck are they doing? Why can't we get our money back? This is outrageous. I was in hell. The other thought of my mother returned to me in, in health and in happiness. I was in heaven. I was experiencing joy. I was experiencing happiness. So um, part of the Buddha's teachings, which correspond with what uh, actually the mainstream medical science is telling us is that we do have the ability to choose our thoughts wisely. We can actually choose our thoughts. We can train our mind in order to choose thoughts that can help us. And we can train our mind to not repress or destroy but not to give so much attention or credence to thoughts that will not help us, that will make us ill, that will be afflictive for us and lead us into states of anger or fear or anxiety. We can choose thoughts that can help us. And this is exemplified in the metta meditation practice that we've been doing which some of you have as a developed practice. So those meta phrases, however we may adapt them for our own use, are helpful, beneficial thoughts. They're like forms. We may feel them, we may not. They may even make us irritated or angry. If we do them as a practice, however, they're like a form, a form of a beneficial thought, a helpful thought, a constructive thought, a powerfully good thought that over time becomes more and more natural to us until it's one of our automatic go-to places. It's a thought that comes up easily. It's a thought that arises very naturally. Um, when we, when I'm uh, in downtown Oakland and I hear a police car with its siren on or the fire engine, uh, my immediate thought that I have is if there is someone who is injured, who is ill, who's suffering, whose house is burning, uh, whose store is burning, I hope that they get the help they need. May they be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be happy. May their lives have moments of joy and ease. So we can train ourselves in this way, and as we do, we create the conditions for more peace and more happiness for ourselves and for others.
So that's that's one aspect of the inner journey and the inner cultivation, the inner wisdom that uh, we develop through our mindfulness meditation practice and our study of the Dharma. What is the out? What is the out in our in and out Dharma? I think for me that it's taking our practice of mindfulness, insight, and compassion, our practice of kindness, our vow to protect all life, into our everyday actions. So what I want to tell you as we're here in the end part of our People of Color retreat is that in my point of view, we need to be very careful about this. A meditation retreat should not be a spiritual commodity or a drug. I am on Facebook. You can friend me if you like, if you're on Facebook, if you're not already friended with me. And I do. I am connected with a large number of uh, Dharma practitioners as well as social justice activists. And it's not uncommon for me to see things on status updates on Facebook where people say, um, I've just come home from the most wonderful meditation retreat and I'm still high. <laughs> Is there something you would like to say, no, Venerable? No, no, no. no go ahead. You can yeah. say it. I don't have anything to say. Okay. <laughs> So in the way that I was trained, and in my point of view, of course, I mean, you know, that can happen. However, it's not our purpose. It's not our purpose at all, uh, in my point of view, and and it's not that helpful to look at a meditation retreat as a fix. We go to the meditation retreat, we get quiet, we eat delicious vegetarian food, Uh, we think our spiritual thoughts, we hear edifying Dharma talks, we try to practice mindfulness, and then uh, this may not apply to you, I'm saying we in the sense of some folks, and then we, we go home and immediately, even before we get home, we turn on our iPhone, we immediately start thinking about all the things that we have to do, and our old habits immediately rush in and assert themselves because they're very strong. Our habits of doing too many things at the same time, of constantly feeling stressed, rushed, pressured, our afflictive thoughts of the memories that give us pain, our fears and anxieties about what the future will or will not hold, immediately rush in because they're very reinforced, they're very strong. And that's, that's natural. But the question becomes, when we leave this retreat, are we going to take what we've learned and apply it and adapt it and really make it work for us? Or are we going to let it just kind of die away quickly or slowly until we think, well, gee, I think I need another meditation retreat so I can get that wonderful spiritual feeling again. So, it is possible. It is possible. I do believe that retreat time is wonderful. 
And I also believe that it's completely possible to take our practice into action, to find ways to integrate it into our everyday life. Most of us are quite busy, and that's okay. We can find ways. We can be creative. We can, we can adapt. We can investigate. We can share best practices with our friends, and we can find friends who reinforce our best practices. That's probably one of the most important things. If you don't already have a sangha at home, create a sangha. Go online. You can find cyber sanghas. Uh, advertise for a meetup group. There are lots of, of ways to do this. Everyone can have a sangha, even if it's just your cat or dog sangha. Uh, and if you're by yourself, that's okay too. You can be a sangha of one. So um, in ending, I'll end with a little story about um, taking the Dharma into everyday life. And I think that yesterday in the wonderful talk that Bhante Suhita Dharma gave, he talked about a form of Dharma preaching he'd heard for the first time that astounded him. What's that called? Bana? Mm-hmm. Bana preaching, which was mm-hmm. kind of like hellfire and brimstone. And right, right. Kind of very amazing, right? Right, right. Yes. And then, and then people would cry out afterwards, like, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yes, but like the way we say amen. Yes. Hallelujah. Okay. Yeah, mahogany says, hallelujah. So uh, I was invited to, as a representative of the meditation center in Oakland, East Bay Meditation Center, where I teach, uh, and I'm on the board there, to an Oakland interfaith brunch. So it was Oakland Interfaith, no, breakfast, 2012. It was 8 to 9.30 a.m. in the morning. And uh, the mayor was going to be there and leaders from all the big churches in Oakland. It looked like a kind of like a fancy thing. And I was invited to be on the benediction team. There would be lots of prayers from many different faith traditions. And I do a fair amount of interfaith work. So I'm very used to, it doesn't bother me that much. I, I'm often only the, the only Buddhist there and one of a very few non-Abrahamic religion uh, persons, sometimes the only one, usually very dominated by Abrahamic religions. So I was fine with that. I just thought, well, I'll go. I'll get a free breakfast. I'll see who's there. <laughs> get to see the mayor, and it will be interesting. I mean, how bad could it be for an hour and a half? So I went, and <clears throat> and it really was nice. They had these big tables, and people brought us a nice breakfast. There was a lot of prayer. There was the um, Allen Temple Baptist Men's Choir, who are quite wonderful. Uh, so a lot of Christian prayer, uh, predictably enough, and I, I was fine with that. And uh, and then some people went over overtime, and there we were at the end. We'd gone overtime, and a lot of people had gone, and it was the time for for the benediction. And almost all of the speakers who had the preachers and ministers who had come to the front shouted. They just shouted a lot, which is not particular to our Buddhist culture. 
You know, so there was a lot of like, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for Mayor Jean Kwan. Thank you. She is protecting our city. Thank you, oh Lord, for the Oakland Police Department. You know, the OPD is used to being reviled and everything by the Occupy Oakland. They were there with their guns on, eating their breakfast. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the Oakland Fire Department. These are our first responders. They come to our neighborhoods. They help our people. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. So there was all this shouting. It was very invigorating and singing. And so uh, the purpose of the interfaith, Breakfast was to address issues of violence in Oakland. We do have a lot of problems, uh, and many of which are familiar to me and not uncommon to urban areas such as homicide. And we also found out from the police chief during this interfaith breakfast that human trafficking has become a huge uh, problem in Oakland. We are a port city and that uh, there are many children, there are many children who are on the streets and who are being uh, sold. So, of course, this was very heartbreaking and uh, brought us together because if there's one thing that can bring many different communities together, it's our kids. We want our kids to be safe and protected from harm, both inner and outer We want them to be strong and healthy, peaceful and happy. We want them to be able to play and be joyous and not be stressed, to be at ease. We want them to be able to accept themselves as they are and to to grow and to be happy. So there was a deep unity, I felt, that, that emerged from this wonderful interfaith breakfast. And I was the last speaker on the benediction team as they just assigned that to me. And so I um, was seized by the Spirit, and, you know, you have to, when you, you, the Dharma must flow into these new forms. So when it was my turn, I got up at the end, and I raised my voice, and I shouted, and I said, The Buddha said, (laughs) All beings tremble before violence. And immediately, like instinctively, all these people, some of whom probably think Buddhism is a satanic religion, shouted, Amen! (laughs) Amen, sister! Sister, yes! (laughs) So I thought, that's pretty good. So I went on. You know, Buddha said, all beings tremble before violence. All fear death. Knowing this, whom can we harm? And everyone said, Amen! And then we ended our interfaith breakfast. (laughs) So that was taking the Dharma out into Oakland. I hope to go back to the interfaith uh, Oakland breakfast uh, next year and meet some of my new friends. (laughs) So thank you. We have about 10 minutes, 12 minutes for insights, questions, and anything you'd like to offer. I'd like to make one quick comment. <laughs> yes, please, uh, and loudly too. Uh, uh, Muslim is mentioning about like going to uh, maybe Mount Baldy and to have a practice session with the Roshi. And um, uh, one thing is that 
when we line up to go for the interviews, there's a bell. And the worst thing in the world is when you hit the bell, then you get up and you walk before the rush and he says, get out. <laughs> Just like that. It's the bell. You have to know how to hit that bell. And it has to have the right sign. The sound, excuse me, sound. And then you can go and proceed. And Easy's going to tell you to get out. Uh, and knowing that particular Roshi, <laughs> you know, he likes to create certain situations and uh, then sit back and look to see what happens. He's like me. Exactly. <laughs> you and your horror movies. Yeah, yeah. It's like, don't go there, don't go there. And of but course, as students, we all go there. Yeah, but it's all the sound of the, of the bell. When you hit the bell, and then go around and go back. That makes people really mad. I know. When they go in, they've cooked up this pretty good answer, and then it's like bing, bing, bing. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Comments, questions? I have a very mundane question. Bring it on. So, I, since I was a kid, I've only seen. Buddhists counting beads, mm-hmm. and I've seen you doing that during, during the retreat, and I've seen Bhante doing that as well. Um, my question is, what what are you doing? <laughs> well, that's not a mundane question at all. So the question is, uh, when Buddhists are using the Buddhist beads and appear to be counting them... Uh, or saying, like, I know when Catholics are saying rosary, I know exactly what they're doing, Yes, I'm not even Catholic. I, I was raised Buddhist, and I don't know what people are doing with their beads. Oh, no, that's a good good question. Uh, well, there would be various uh, practices. So I'll just, mine is very simple. And uh, this uh, was what I was trained in. So in Korean Buddhism, the name of Kwan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion, much beloved, is uh, Kwan Seom. So same thing as Kwan Yin or Kanun in Japanese. Kwan Seom. Posal means Bodhisattva, great great being of enlightenment. So <clears throat> there's a lot of Kwan Seom Posal chanting in Korean Buddhism. You can go on for days. You can do a chanting practice. And then, uh, so my practice with this is with each bead, I'm silently reciting Kwan Seom Posal. Kwan Seom Posal. Kwan Seom Posal. Great being of compassion. Great being of compassion. Great being of compassion. Bonte, um, what would be a practice that you do with your, I know you have Tibetan beads. Mm-hmm. There are various uh, styles. Yeah, I do many different kinds of mantras, like the ones you just made. Not only do the uh, Tibetan ones, I do the Vietnamese ones, I do the Chinese ones, and sometimes uh, when I feel like it, I also do Christian ones. So it's just counting, you know. And the ones that's closest to me to make me feel a little bit better, you know, when you have one of those days or one of those moments and and you ch- want to do those things, and it's very good for quieting your mind. But I do many different kinds. But the most popular is the Kuan Yin or Kuan Zian Buddha. Uh, those are very popular. That's the, for most people that do. And then we have, of course, our secret ones for, from the Tibetan ones that we do as well, too. That's given by the Lama. 
Mm-hmm. And you could probably do it with the name of Amida Buddha, right? Oh, yeah, we do that, yeah. too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Namu Amitabha. <coughs> yeah, Namu Amitofo, Namu Amitabha, Namu Amitabha, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. So if you ever get stuck in, like, a really boring <coughs> meeting... <laughs> no, it does. It keeps your mind really fresh. You're sitting there. You can keep it under the desk. Yeah, and you can also <laughs> use the short one. Right, or use, use the wrist one. <coughs> so it's a really fun practice. Give it a try. Yes? So, uh, following her question, <coughs> Can I use them like praying for loving kindness? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They're just they're just just kind of a tool, something to fiddle with. You know how people like to fiddle with stuff. Instead of smoking a cigarette, pull out the beads. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. There's something about that tactile feedback, uh, which is is really uh, good, in order to strengthen and calm the mind. And usually there is a significance to the number of beads. This is a 108 strand, and 108 is significant in the Dharma. Um, I was taught that it means that we have uh, 108 forms of passions and distractions, which through (coughs) our practice we transform into 108 qualities, beautiful qualities of mind, 108 virtues or helpful Mm. things. and so you see there's one kind of central bead. I think some people call it the Buddha bead. And so if I did Kwan Siam Posal all the way around, I would know that when I got back to the tassel, I had done 108 recitations. Is that something, can you buy beads for yourself, or should they be a gift yeah. from someone? You can buy them for yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or you can buy some and give them as a gift if you want. Mm-hmm. Or you can make your own. Mm-hmm. Some people make them out of seeds, and uh, they're all different kinds. They're ones of kind of precious stones. These are wood. I just like plain wood ones myself. Uh, so, again, the point is uh, to use them, to actually use them for your practice. And uh, uh, not necessarily to think of them as... Hey, now I'm bringing out my jade mala, or now I'm bringing out, and people say, "Wow, you know, that's that's really a fancy, looks so expensive. Where'd you get that from?" So it becomes that spiritual shopping thing again. So, get what the drama? I like to do that too. The drama? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have one that just blow you away, and you haven't seen it. <laughs> Well, why haven't I seen it? Because the, the occasion hasn't arrived. <laughs> Fine, we'll have to make an occasion. Okay, we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for the rest of us, except for Sahita Dharma. <laughs> now, it's just something to watch our mind about. To watch our mind without, you know, kind of the gear, the spiritual gear. Uh, we should have what we need. Like a really good meditation cushion, if you mm-hmm. use it, is is a wonderful thing to invest in. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very good tool. Or your bench, whatever it is that encourages <coughs> you and supports your, your practice. And we just get what we need. We're simple. We're content with that. Mm-hmm. Yes? How would you know what to say? Because I'm Catholic. So like, if you 
got one of those leads? Like, how would you start it? Um, I'll definitely refer that to our Budala you know, community. <laughs> you want a Catholic one? No, I have a Catholic, like, I'm, I'm Catholic, so I have a rosary. Uh-huh. But I guess this is different. Like, how, how would you use it? How do you know what to say? What, what would you like to say? Um, oh, just like that? Well, what quality would you like to bring into your life? That might be a good you way go to look at it. Over and over and over like that with that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, either uh, you could you could say Deus and uh, <coughs> Deus and Adjutorium Meum Tende Domini Adjuanum Mea Festina. Oh Lord, have mercy, Lord, hear my prayers. Or, you know, just make something short, really, and just go one, one, one. There's a lot of things you could really do, you know, uh, like that. And you can just say, uh, have Mary. You seem like you you, you Rosie. Mm-hmm. You know, have Mary, have mercy on us. You can do that. There's so many, so many, so many, so many. There's so many of those you could use that'll are, that are benefit you. <laughs> Yeah, choose something that brings you peace something and joy. Something that brings you, you know, something you that you, you own. You can take mm-hmm. ownership of it personally for you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes? Over the last few days, we've heard reference to the Vietnamese tradition, the Tibetan tradition, um, you know, the, the Zen tradition, the American tradition. I, I was wondering if just on a very high level, <coughs> it's possible to kind of give a quick overview of maybe kind of what the similarities and differences are between, you know, or among the major um, Buddhist traditions. And, and also where the Pasana meditation lies within, within all of these different traditions. Wow, what a great last question. We've got one minute. <laughs> I'll say something just fast, and there are there are books which, um, you know, you can connect with me. Uh, one that I like a lot is Buddhism, A Way of Life and Thought by Nancy Wilson Ross. I just ordered it as a present for a friend of mine. It's very clearly written. It's a really enjoyable read, uh, paperback. So uh, what I would say to that is that uh, Buddhism has three major lineages, and uh, what's considered to be the earliest one is the Theravada, or Path of the Elders, which you find in south, um, south the southern Asian countries, such as Thailand, Burma, uh, Sri Lanka, what, Laos, Cambodia. Cambodia. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and India, because the sun gets back. Okay, and some in India again. In Nepal. Nepal. Also, yeah. Theravada in mm-hmm. Nepal. <laughs> so there's the Theravada path of the elders. Then came the Mahayana, which means great way, which you find in the northern countries, uh, China, Japan, <coughs> Korea. And in Viet- Vietnam, as I understand it, there's a syncretic tradition that brings together many of the lineages. And then in Tibet... The Dharma bonded with the indigenous shamanism or bone tradition, mm-hmm. and from that has emerged the Vajrayana, mm-hmm. the Vajrayana. So Theravada, 
Mahayana, Vajrayana, and insight meditation or Vipassana practice is located within the Theravada. It's one of the uh, the teachings uh, that was taught by the Buddha as well, too, because that's for meditation practices. Uh, so if you uh, if you find the book uh, Path of Purification, all of that is listed in that. And we call it in Pali Visuddhimagga, and it's all listed in the different types of meditation practices and how they expanded and extended. But one thing I wanted to say, especially about Vietnam, Vietnam is unique because Vietnam had Buddhism before China. And both schools, you had the Mahayana monks came, and then you had also the, uh, I would say Theravada monks, but there was 18 schools of monks at that time. And so the 18 schools came into Vietnam at the same time. Right now we have a, there's a major controversy because a lot of people think Wen Ang was uh, uh, Chinese, but he wasn't. He was Vietnamese. That's why he had to keep it secret that he was the first patriarch. Because otherwise, if they had found out that he was from the South, that could have happened to him. He could have been assassinated. So that's what makes Vietnam very unique because all the Buddhist schools Mm -hmm. that exist is under one church. And we all, everyone works together in harmony. So that's what makes it mostly unique about uh, Vietnamese Buddhism. You have the Theravada, you have the uh, Mahayana schools, all the different Zen schools, the Pure Land schools, and all of those in there. And there's a wealth of information you can, if you're really interested in it, a wealth of information that could open a lot of doors for you to to investigate and look into those. It's very interesting, very interesting. I hope that gets you started. Thank you. Okay, we've just gone a few minutes over time, not bad at all. It's 11.03. We'll gather here again promptly at 11.30. There will be a very important morning uh, program. So we'll be talking about transitioning out of retreat, uh, some things about Viacitos, and also how uh, some really important parts of practice in the afternoon. So thank you. I'll ring the bell, and we'll see you at 11.30.